to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Good evening and uh, welcome to our evening service tonight. I'm, I'm still freezing, I'm sorry. So if it's in my voice, <laughs> that's a great quote you have, Bill. Um, <laughs> folks, if you'd love to turn with me to page uh, one. 1,235, you'll find Revelation chapter 3. Uh, so let me give you a moment just to turn to that uh, chapter of Revelation. And as we're turning there, let, let me pray for us as we come to this passage uh, to Sardis, the church in Sardis. And tonight, let me pray for God's Spirit to help us understand this and more importantly, maybe to apply this passage tonight. Father, we understand from your word that your word is a light to our path and it guides our feet. And Father, tonight we come to the one who owns these words, who has given them to us, and we pray for your help, Lord, as we come to this passage in this letter to Sardis, that, Father, you will help us to search our hearts and minds that we'll understand this as a life-giving word. And that, Lord, we will respond to you to bring glory and honor to your own name, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. This man on the screen is Gaius Julius Phaedrus, and he was born in 15 BC, and he died in 50 AD. He wrote fables or stories, and he is well known for the following famous line. When translated, it says this, things are not always what they seem. The first appearance deceives many. The intelligence of a few perceives what has been carefully hidden. It's the first part of this quotation that most of us know, isn't it? Not the second or the second half of it. Things are not always what they seem. Things are not always what they seem. And how true this statement was when we think about life and news stories that have come up over the years, particularly this one. Back in 2006, this man, Mike Philpott, appeared on our TVs. I don't know if you remember this. He famously fathered 17 children by various partners and was living off the state and so got a, a little publicity on one of the channels. But then he reappeared on television cameras in May 2012 cutting the figure of a man who'd been devastated because his house had been burnt down and his six young children had been killed in the burning of the house. It later turned out that Mike Philpott had set fire to the house himself, but didn't intend to kill his children. 
It was an act of revenge or framing of another person. Things are not always the way they seem. And the same was true for this man, the eccentric man that was James Wilson, Vincent Savile, Jimmy Savile. He was famous for the much-loved program. Remember it? Jimmy Fix It. Notorious for wearing neck chains for charity work. He was well-known. He was awarded an OBE in 1971. In 1991, he was awarded a knighthood, Sir Jimmy Savile. Things are not always the way they seem. And as we come to the letter in front of your hands tonight, the letter to Sardis tonight, this saying by Phaedrus, that things are not always what they seem, couldn't be more aptly applied than to the people and situation here in Sardis. Our first heading tonight is the situation, verses 1 and 2. Here was a church whose reputation was such that it was regarded as being alive, spiritually vibrant, strong in the faith, belonging to Christ, verse 1, where Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. Perhaps this group of believers in this local church met regularly. Perhaps they supported other churches in the region by prayer and mission and even financially. They looked apart. And they assumed that we, they were taking part in church gatherings, heard the word, used the means of grace, such as the Lord's Supper, worshipped together with their voices and lips. They may even have had a good number attending the local groups or church houses that they had. They were spiritually alive. They had a reputation for being spiritually alive. And even today we can understand this, can't we? We can understand how churches can get a bit of a reputation, can't we? I wonder what the perception is for Bloomfield. What's your reputation? Don't answer it. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder from the outside, as people look in, what, what kind of reputation you have. Because we can understand it. Because as we think about our area in East Belfast, they have a really good worship team in their church. There are lots of young people going to this church or that church. Certain churches have gained a great reputation. They do good community work. They're brilliant at it. They have a good kids program. They look after the senior members. Churches today can have reputations, can't they? And so we can understand how a church in Sardis back in the day had a reputation for being spiritually alive. And do you see what is said about them, though? At the end of verse 1, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Can I imagine for a moment with you what that would be like if I read out that? to you tonight. If I came and I said, Bloomfield, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You'd stone the southerner, wouldn't you? <laughs> You'd say, oh, who's he think he is? And it is that. It would be easy to deflect and avoid and compartmentalize this evaluation, wouldn't it? If it came from someone within the church, you just go, he's, he's nuts. He's crazy. Or, oh, look, he's always had a bee in his bonnet about stuff. Or an outsider coming in, you go, you don't know us. But the fact that this word, this reality check, and the evaluation comes from the messenger to the church, and more importantly, do you see, verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know. These words, these searching insight into the life of the church is from Jesus himself. 
who is the first and the last. Do you remember back in Revelation chapter 1, John had the following vision, which he records about Jesus in chapter 1, verse 12. You can flick back if you want. Verse 12, it says this, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in, the, in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Jesus is amongst his church, the lampstands, amongst his people. John Stott puts it like this. He says, the risen Lord Jesus himself, as the chief pastor of the flock, patrolling, inspecting, and supervising the church, he has intimate knowledge of them. And so tonight, this isn't an outsider coming in and saying this to Sardis. This isn't someone who's within the church. This is Jesus himself, who is amongst the lampstands, amongst his church, and he says to them, you have a reputation for being alive, but in fact, you're dead. Last week, we saw in the letter to Thyatira, we saw that Jesus is the one, 2.23, I am the one who searches the hearts and the minds. There is no deceiving Jesus. There is no way that this church can hoodwink or give a false perception or reputation because Jesus knows intimately, even as Carol prayed, he knows us intimately, the reality and the depth of his people's hearts and lives. And Jesus here at Sardis, by means of the life-giving spirit through his word, is saying lovingly to this people, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead, you're dying. And if there's one thing that Jesus hates, it's hypocrisy. We saw this in the Gospels, didn't we? When he faced the religious of the day, he said in Mark 7 to them, straight as a die, he said to them, Isaiah, the old prophet, was right. When he said about you, you hypocrites, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And here in Sardis, Jesus is bringing truth, reality to a church people who were living a lie, a deception, a reputation for being alive but they were in fact dying. And you've got to ask the question, well, what was this malaise? What, what was this spiritual deadness? What was causing it? And Jesus knows their deeds, he tells us, but at the end of verse two, do you see it? He says to them, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. We know from scripture, don't we, that good works or deeds are not the way to make us right with God. Right? That's a general understanding that we cannot work our way up to for God to be pleased with us. In fact, he does it for us. But in response to his grace and his mercy, we're told that there are good works prepared for us in advance to do. There's a huge difference in those two things. And here in Sardis, it wasn't a case that they had no deeds. I know your deeds, Jesus says, but rather their deeds were incomplete in the eyes of God. Different commentaries have put forward different ideas or range of ideas as to what this might mean. Some think it means that these incomplete deeds were really half-heartedness, that yes, they were doing good deeds, but their hearts weren't in them. You can understand that, can't you? You go to work tomorrow morning, you do the job, but your heart's not in it. Or you do something and you go, look, I'm just going through the motions here. And that's an incomplete deed because your heart and your whole life isn't invested in it. They were going through the motions of religious observance and forms, but their attitude was not right. And so before God, their deeds are incomplete. They're a bit like when we did Amos, do you remember? Burnt offerings you bring, away with your songs, God goes, because their heart wasn't in it. 
Others think that the church had given up on certain aspects of their gospel calling on their lives, such as reaching out to the people around them. This seems to gain some traction, I think, because there's no mention in Sardis of opposition or persecution for the church here. Had it become so easygoing with the culture and lifestyle around them that these people were no longer distinct, pursuing holiness maybe, or sharing the gospel with others, they were as one with the people and culture around them, and so the gospel no longer was in any way challenging or offensive or obnoxious to the culture around them. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says this, Sardis was a very peaceful church. It enjoyed peace, but it was the peace of the cemetery. He said they were dead, dying. And as we look at this church tonight, we see two things. They were either incomplete in half-heartedness, or they had given up on the gospel calling that had implications for sharing it with others. And I just wonder tonight, as this is a searching passage, as we look at this tonight, can, can we relate to them? Can we relate to their tendencies, their similarities of having maybe a, a bit of a reputation, be it of our own perception or of others who think of us? Could it be tonight that some of us are half-hearted in our, our Christian walk? We're going through the motions of home group, prayer meetings, church services, saying we're Christian, but the reality is our heart is fading. It's dying. Could it be that we no longer take aspects of gospel, gospel calling seriously? Sin, sure, what sin? I can do whatever I like. Holiness, the pursuit of it. Gospel proclamation. I haven't shared the gospel with anyone for weeks, months. I don't see a need anymore. And so we become Christians without any distinctive edge and we've just assimilated it into the culture, sub-Christian culture around us. Or perhaps we're just simply keeping up appearances. Do you remember the British sitcom? I, I used to love this. It was a weird comedy, but... Hey. Do you remember this sitcom a couple of years ago? With, it went from 1990 to 95. I was amazed when I found out that. With this character called Hyacinth Bucket, or Bouquet, as she liked to refer to herself. And it was all about keeping up appearances, wasn't it? And in that show, Hyacinth was all about keeping up the posh accent, even though she'd come from a fairly normal uh, upbringing with visitors, even on the phone, she had the, the, the accent and everything going on. But it was a tiring ordeal for her. And she was often stressed out, trying to keep up the appearances of everything that was going on. And it can be a bit like that spiritually too, can it? can't it? Where we're trying to show the appearance of being spiritually alive. We come to church, we're involved in stuff, but if truth be known, we're struggling, we're dying spiritually, and we don't know what or how to deal with this. But there's a need in here. In Revelation 1, there's a terrifying picture of Jesus with this sword coming in and out of his mouth. And tonight, that word is searching. That sword is going in and out of our Savior's mouth, as it were. And he's saying to this church, you have a reputation of being alive but in fact, you're dying. And the question you have to ask is, what's the solution to this? If you, we, or even this church, are in this kind of state, if you're tired of keeping up appearances, half-heartedness, tired of not proclaiming the gospel anymore, of holiness, sinfulness, where you're absolutely sick of the sin that you're caught in and you just go, I thought this was something that was offering me something good. In fact, it's trapped me. What's the solution to this falsehood, this keeping up appearances, this spiritual deadness. 
verses 2 and 3, the remedy is there. There are five things that Jesus says quickly. The first is this, wake up. Jesus graciously comes and he says, wake up. You ever been to a hotel and you go up to the front desk? First thing they'll say once you're filling out the forms is what? Do you want a newspaper? My question is, do I have to pay for this? All right, with the newspaper. And then the second thing is they ask, do you want a wake up call? And you're going, if you're on leisure, you're going, I don't want a wake up call at six in the morning, I'll be in bed. But some people who are on business go, yeah, give me one at six. And it is like that here. However, the wake up call here at the beginning of verse two is not because they're fast asleep. It's because they're just drifting along. They need to be awoken, aroused from this, disturbed from it. And God comes and he says, wake up. And I don't know if you know much about Sardis, maybe Bill does, but Sardis, to say this to a resident of Sardis, to wake up, would have hit home like Atten, because for two simple reasons. Sardis was captured twice, right? In 15 or 549 BC and 218 BC, it was captured why? Because they let down their guard and they weren't awake. They weren't alert to the enemy coming. Twice, some guy climbed up the wall in Sardis, which was impenetrable, they said. He climbed it up, in he went, and opened up for the rest of the enemies. Twice it was taken. And so for God to say to these Christians at Sardis, wake up, keep alert, it would have brought home to mind how the city fell twice in history. And God says, wake up. Second thing he says here is strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Perhaps there was some good things happening in the church. And Jesus says to the church, wake up and strengthen, reinforce what is about to die. It's a bit like a burning fire, isn't it? Which was once roaring. You gain its warmth and heat from it. Everyone could feel that. But now it's just embers. And it's just dying away. And it's as if God is saying, strengthen it. Strengthen what remains. And folks, if this is you tonight, as I ask these questions of myself, maybe you have that much desire to deal with the state that you're in. And you're going, what? you know what? I'm at that point of a knife edge where if I don't deal with this and wake up, I may actually spiritually die. And God has given me that little desire to strengthen what remains to wake up, to respond to him. Because he says here, wake up and strengthen what remains. Whatever little desire you still have in your heart for following him, act upon it. Reinforce it before it dies out completely. And thirdly, it says in verses three, remember the gospel. Remember the word. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. They'd received the true apostolic teaching. They'd benefited from its blessing. And Jesus is saying to them, remember the gospel, the good news that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. Remember it. Remember those days when you received that gospel for the first time. Fourthly, he says, obey it. Verses four, three. The gospel needs to be received and heard and continually obeyed for it to be fruitful in the church. And so Jesus says to them plainly, obey it, hold on to it. Obey the gospel, the revealed will of God. We cannot choose and pick what we like, but rather obedience. Jesus is saying to this church, obey the word of God and its implications. Perhaps they saw no longer any need for holy living. 
for sharing the gospel. Perhaps they'd become very cozy in their lifestyle, and God says, you need to return and obey it. Paul Gardner, in his commentary, says this, obedience is the key to discipleship and showing fruit of the Spirit in the life of the church and in the individual. So wake up, strengthen what remains, remember the gospel, obey it, and fifthly, Jesus calls them to repent. The call to repentance is found in five of the seven letters to the church in Revelation. Repentance is not mentioned in Smyrna or Philadelphia that we'll see because they've done good deeds, they've suffered persecution. There isn't actually a need for them to repent, repent. The letter to these churches is to encourage them on their gospel witness. But in the other five letters, Jesus is lovingly pointing out what was good, but also pointing out their need to repent. To repent in Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea, which we'll see. Sardis are to repent of their hypocrisy, their acting, their half-heartedness, their lack of obedience to the word of God. They are to repent to God because he didn't call them to this way of life. Folks, tonight there may be some of us here in this room who can identify with this church and its state may well be covering up for years or months. You may be here. You're treading water in church circles and amongst the church family. And let me tell you this, it is so easy. No one will put a button on you or put you to the pin of your collar. You can cream along in church circles. It's an easy place to go through the motions. Maybe you've been pretending for some time and you're tired of it. But you know what to do? Jesus tonight is calling this church and us to repent, to turn away from our sin and come to him again. Who can forgive bring new life and refresh your soul. Remember his words in the gospel. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. But without repentance, there'll be no change, and the church will completely die. The warning, though, do you see it here in verses 3? is not anything humorous, really. It is quite sobering in verse 3, where Jesus says to the church, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Hands up if you've ever been burgled, just as a matter of interest, or robbed. All right. Did you not know they were coming? Isn't that the thing with a thief and a robber? They take you by surprise. And it's almost as here as Jesus is saying, wake up or I'll come like a thief and you won't know when that will be. And we know from the gospels that when thief is used, it's often used of the second coming of Jesus. He said, he'll come like, like a thief in the night. We won't know. It'll be sudden, quick. So be alert, wake up. And Jesus says here to the church that he will come like a thief. They won't know when his coming will be. But throughout these letters, we've been constantly reminded and encouraged to think Jesus is coming back. And so he says to them, I'm going to come like a thief. So wake up, get your house in order, sort your things out. And lastly, and finally, we come to verses four to six, which are the promises. Having caused a situation, this is where you're at. Having told us he's going to come and have judgment or like a second coming or the judgment of Jesus on them. He then turns in verses four to six and he promises them. And the promises are here to spur the Christian on 
at Sardis and us here tonight. The first thing to notice is verse 4. Yet there are a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. When our kids were, were younger, and they still are, every mealtime, and particularly when we were heading out after a meal, you know how it's like if you have grandchildren or kids of your own, you'd be so careful that they didn't get food on their clothes, right? That you'd have them wrapped up to here with cloths, and they'd still manage, whatever way it is, to get milk, bolognese, which is always the worst, isn't it? And water spilt down their top, and you're going, we have to change it all, and we're on the way out. They'd soiled or dirtied their clothes, and it's the same image here in Sardis, that there are a few who didn't spoil their clothes, as it were, meaning that they had not given into the way of life of incomplete works, half-heartedness, or just being absorbed into the culture of the day or hypocrites, of being hypocrites. They're commended here. And it is literally saying here in the Greek, there are a few names, a few people. There's always a few, isn't there, who remain faithful in the church. There's always a few. It was the same in ancient Israel. When the majority had walked away from their covenant relationship with God, there was always a few who remained faithful. And it is the same here in Sardis. He says the vast majority of this church had given in, had half-heartedness, incomplete works. But then the lovely verse of verse 4 says, yet you have a few names, a few people in Sardis who haven't done this. And he's speaking to them, and he's speaking in order to push these other Christians to repent and obedience. And he says to them, he gives them a couple of promises in there. And those who remain faithful to God, for those who overcome, there are certain promises in verses 4 to 6. And there are beautiful promises. First one is this. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Dressed in white. White always symbolizes purity and holiness. The contrast then between the white clothing and the dirty clothing that we see here, you can't miss it. He's saying they are a few who will be dressed in white. The white clothing is given by God. In Revelation chapter, there are 24 elders. What are they dressed in? White clothing, robes, crowns upon their heads. Those who had been dyed or had been slain in chapter 6 are given white robes to wear. And the well-known verse, at the very end of time, when God gathers all his people together, there'll be a great multitude in Revelation, it says, from every tribe and nation, people and language, standing before the Lamb, they are wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. It's that idea of righteousness, of completion. And God says to them, you will wear white robes, those who remain faithful, those who overcome. And the next thing we see is this. I will never be, they will never be blotted out. Their names will never be blotted out from the book of life. Do you remember this product? I don't know. Do you remember this? Well, the school, the school I went to didn't use it for Tipex, I can tell you that. They were more sniffing it um, <laughs> in the, back, in the back, backyard a bit. But it was meant for blotting out. Do you remember that? It's quite old now, isn't it? I probably still don't use it today. But here... The tipex was used to get rid of mistakes, blotted out, and it would turn it this really weird white. It'd be like plaster Paris, remember, going across the page. And here in verse 5, God is making the promise to the church, to those who remain faithful, who overcome, that their names will never be tipexed, blotted out from the book of life. 
Remember, the book of life is mentioned at least five times in Revelation. And chapter 20, we read the following about the final judgment, and it says this, And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Books and book. Books that record what you've done, but the book of life is one single. And here God is reminding these who are faithful, continue being faithful, repent and come back and I will never blot your name out of the book of life. It'll always be there. You will join with others in being there. The promise that you'll never be struck off, blotted out, tipexed off from eternal life because the name is written in the book of life. And then lastly, we see, and finally, we see that God, that Jesus will acknowledge you before God and his angels. I picture it like this. If you've ever watched the period dramas like Downton Abbey or Important of Being Earnest, and you're always invited to a party, do you remember how they come in? Their names are read out, aren't they? Mr. and Mrs., the Duke of whatever. And I imagine it like this in this picture because that's the image it conjures up, doesn't it? Of the big hall, the Lamb's Supper at the end, and Jesus will hurl in those who have been faithful and overcome, and he'll acknowledge them by name before his Father and his angels in the courts of heaven. What a majestic picture. And you know what? There'll be an old woman down the back here in Bloomfield, and her name will be called out because she was faithful and overcame and kept being loyal to Jesus. There might be boys up the front whose names might never be called out, but there will be those who are faithful. And Jesus promises here, I'll acknowledge you before my Father and his angels for if you remain faithful and overcome. And the promise was not only made in Revelation. Do you remember back in Matthew's gospel when Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. What great promises to spur us on to strengthen what remains to remember the gospel, to obey it, to repent, so that one day Jesus in the courts of heaven will receive his faithful people, his church, dressed in white, their names found in the book of life, and their names called out before God the Father in the heaven, the hosts of heaven as they watch on. Folks, the promises are there to spur us on. The situation is there to us for God to search our hearts and minds. So let us not be like the church at Sardis, where things are not always what they seem, but rather let us tonight hear what the Spirit says to his church, and may we respond in obedience to Jesus' word. Let's take a moment just to respond to his word tonight, and then we'll continue.